take a Bible this afternoon. Let's open it together. 1 Kings chapter 1. And uh, if you didn't bring a Bible today, you can borrow our copy of the Bible. It's right on the back of the seat in front of you there. And we're going to be on page 235 to begin with today. Page 235 or 1 Kings chapter 1 in your copy of the Bible. We're going to continue in our study of the life of, of David, the great man of God. Now, when I say the word self-destruct, I wonder what person's name comes into your mind. Uh, maybe Elvis or uh, Tanya Harding, maybe. Jim and Tammy. Jimmy Swaggart, uh, Pete Rose. I don't know who comes into your mind. But today we're going to look at a guy in the Bible who did exactly this. He self-destructed. He started off really good. But you know, the real measure of success is not how you start. It's how you finish. And this guy didn't finish so good. So we want to talk about him. And then we want to talk about how you and I as Christians can avoid having the same thing happen to you and me. Now, the fellow's name is, is Abiathar, and you say, Abiathar, Abiathar. Man, that name sounds so familiar. Well, the reason it does is I just mentioned him in a sermon a couple weeks ago, and you go, oh, yeah, I remember. Right, sure you do. Well, anyway, let's go back and review and make sure we all understand who this is, because I don't take it personal, and I didn't expect you to remember anyway. So let's talk about who he is. If you remember, David, when he was fleeing from Saul, Saul was out to kill him, he went through this little town called Nob, N-O-B. The, the tabernacle was there, the priests were all there, and he lied to the high priest, you remember the story, and he, he, he deceived the high priest into giving him food and weaponry. When Saul found out, he killed the high priest, he killed all the priests in the town and all their families, and there was only one priest who escaped, a fellow named Abiathar. Abiathar was the son of the high priest who was able to escape and he ran to David and he threw in with David and he became part of David's entourage. And when David became king not long after this, he went back and reinstalled Abiathar as the high priest in the place of where his dad had been. And he said to him, from now on, you and your sons will hold the priesthood. David put him back in that position. Now, when I was studying this, I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to go and look and see when Abiathar pops up, if he does, anywhere else in the Bible? I mean, I'd like to know whatever happened to this guy. So I began doing some work on it. And the truth is that he does appear a couple other times in the Bible. For example, when Absalom... David's son, a little later in life, revolts against David and tries to overthrow him, runs David out of the city, tries to kill his dad. Abiathar was there, and Abiathar, the high priest at that point, remained loyal to David, even though most of Israel didn't. And, and, and so that was another good choice that he made. When David was restored to the throne, he rewarded Abiathar for having stayed loyal to him. But there was one other time, and this is the last time, actually, that we find Abiathar appearing in the Bible, is right here in 1 Kings chapter 1. Here the situation is, David is old, he's aged, in fact, he's on his deathbed, he's infirmed and bedridden, and he has already taken the step of publicly announcing that Solomon, one of his sons, is going to be the next king. He hasn't crowned Solomon yet, but everybody knows Solomon's the next king. However, at this time, one of David's other sons, a fellow named Adonijah, decides, no, why should Solomon be king? Man, I, I mean, I, I'm older than he is. I should be king. So let's pick up here. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, 1 Kings chapter 1. It says, Now Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king, not Solomon, me. So he got chariots and he got horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. And he was about ready to march to the city of Jerusalem and proclaim himself to be the king. Well, verse 7. And Adonijah conferred with Joab, who had been the commander of David's armies, and with Abiathar. There's our friend, 
the priest and they gave him their support. They threw in with this guy. You say, well, Lon, wait a minute, I got a question. Why would Abiathar do this? I mean, you know, didn't he know that Solomon had already gone out, you know, was already announced as the next king? Didn't he know that the hand of God had chosen Solomon and that David had already made this commitment? Didn't he know that if Solomon became king after he threw in with his brother, that Solomon was not going to just take that line down? I mean, didn't he know all that? Well, I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did. You say, well, then why in the world, what in the world could possibly possess this man that he would take this kind of risk and make this kind of decision? The answer is, I don't have a clue. It's not a clue. I don't know why he would do something like this. It makes absolutely no sense. And you know what? David heard about this. David outfoxed his son Adonijah. You know how he did it? He went ahead and abdicated the kingship right there on the spot, went ahead and crowned Solomon on the spot, went ahead and marched him through the city of Jerusalem and already celebrated him becoming king. And when Adonijah showed up to, to, to say, hey, I'm going to be the next king, it was too late. Solomon was already king. The party was over. Well, all of Adonijah's supporters ran away, but what happened to our friend Abiathar? Well, turn to the next chapter, chapter 2, 1 Kings chapter 2, and look with me here at verse 26. Verse 26, And to Abiathar the priest, King Solomon said, Go back to your fields in Anatote. You deserve to die. You threw in with my brother. You threw in with someone who wanted to usurp the throne away from me. I ought to kill you, man. That's what I ought to do is kill you. But he said, because you carried the ark of the Lord before my father David and because you shared all my father's hardships, I'm not going to kill you. My dad, my dad needed you and you were there for him. When Saul was chasing him, you were there for him. When Absalom was chasing him, you were there for him. And that's the only reason I'm not going to kill you. But he does say to him, verse 27, Solomon does remove Abiathar from the priesthood of the Lord. He took it away from him, took it away from his sons. And so never again would any member of this family hold the high priesthood because of this decision that Abiathar made. You say, Lon, it was a terrible decision. It was. It, it, it was a disastrous decision. It was. And with that decision... Abiathar joins um, Tanya and Elvis and Pete and Jim and Tammy as members of the Self-Destruction Hall of Fame, friends. I mean, it was one of the worst decisions you could possibly make in your life. Now, that's the end of, uh, of, of Abiathar's life that we want to talk about. That's the last time he appears in the Bible. But it leads us to ask the really important question. And what's the really important question? So what? Thank you very much. All right. You know, one of my favorite movies is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And if you don't know the story, or even if you do, let me tell you real quick. You remember Indiana's chase trying to find the Holy Grail, the cup that Jesus drank out of at the Last Supper. And the idea is if you find it and you drink out of it, you'll live forever. So at the end of the movie, you know, it's the bad guy in Indiana and they're with this knight who's like 900 years old because he'd been drinking out of this cup all these years. And in front of them is this table with all of these cups on it. And the knight turns, of course, the bad guy has the upper hand, and he turns to the bad guy who's going to make the first choice, and he says to him, now look, if you choose the right cup and you drink from it, you'll live forever. 
And if you choose the wrong cup and drink from it, you're going to shrivel up and you're going to you're going to die. And we're going to do everything to you that modern Hollywood special effects can do to you. So, you know, you better choose right. And so he looks there and he chooses this gold cup with all the diamonds on it and jewels and he drinks from it. And all of a sudden he starts going and he ends up with this big old gob of glue on the ground. And very matter-of-factly, the knight turns to Indiana and says, He chose poorly. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. It's one of my favorite lines in the movie. And, and uh, well, we could say that about Abiathar, right? He chose poorly. Bad mistake. And, and yet, the issue is not really Abiathar. The issue is us. Because can't many times we look at our lives and say, We chose poorly. And because we make some poor choices... We end up, you know, kind of getting ourselves in some big trouble. Listen, friends, God doesn't want that to happen to you and me. God wants you and me not just to start the Christian life well. He wants us to finish the Christian life well. He doesn't want our car in the ditch. He doesn't want us going off the edge of the cliff. He doesn't want you stepping on landmines and blowing yourself up. He wants you to finish like Paul, who said, I have run the race. I have finished the course. I fought the fight. I kept the faith. And now I've got a gold medal up in heaven laid up for me. This is how God wants you to finish. He wants you out of the ditch. But there are some principles he's given us in the word of God to help keep you and me out of the ditch. And I've got four that I want to share with you today. Four principles of how you and I can make choices that help us avoid spiritual disaster like Abiathar got himself into. Principle number one, stay vitally connected to the word of God. Stay vitally connected to the Word of God. You know, when we go to Israel every year, we go to Jericho. And right outside of Jericho, up on the hillside in the Judean wilderness, is this old monastery. It's called the Monastery of the Temptation. And it celebrates the fact that in that general area, Jesus spent time being tempted by the devil 40 days and 40 nights. Now, if you remember the story in Matthew chapter 4, the devil comes to Jesus with three temptations, any one of which, if Jesus had grabbed them, he would have self-destructed. Any one of which would have brought disaster into his life. He couldn't have been the Messiah. He couldn't have been the Savior of the world if he'd have done any of these. And it's interesting how Jesus responded. He said to all three temptations, no, it is written, it is written, it is written. He responded back to these temptations to self-destruct with the Word of God. And when you look, you'll find that two of those quotes that Jesus comes up with come out of Deuteronomy 6. One of them comes out of Deuteronomy 8. It seems pretty obvious to me that as Jesus was out in the wilderness, He was meditating on the book of Deuteronomy. So that when these opportunities came to self-destruct, He had the Word of God right on His fingertips, ready to respond and be able to say, No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to make that choice. That's a self-destructive choice. It is written, and He fought using the Bible. Folks, one of the reasons God recorded this in the Bible for you and me is to help us understand that the more you and I read and the more we memorize and the more we meditate on the Word of God, the fewer decisions we will make that result in train wrecks in our life. You know, I want you to turn to me well, with me well, to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, if you're using our copy of the Bible, it's page 436. And Psalm 119 is all about the value of the Bible in our lives. And it has some incredible comments to make about how the Bible can help you and me not make choices that are self-destructive. It also happens to be the longest psalm anywhere in the Bible, a fact which is completely irrelevant, but I'm just filling time while you turn. Okay, now, what do we see here? Look with me at verse 9. 
Verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure or a young woman by living according to your word? Verse 11. I have hidden your word in my heart, David says, that I might not sin against you. One of the ways that we can avoid sinning against God, one of the ways we can keep our way pure, one of the ways that we can stay away from those choices that end up bringing consequences from God onto our life, the Bible says right here, is to hide the Word of God in our heart and to meditate on the Word of God. It'll keep us off the rocks. Skip down to verse 24. It says, Your statutes are my delight, they are my counselors. The Bible says that if we will let it be, it will become our personal therapist. It will become our personal counselor and will advise us all through life as to how to make wise choices in our life. And the best part about the Bible as our counselor is not only does it never give you bad advice, but also it does not cost $125 an hour. So this is a wonderful counselor to have. It's free and easy. Now, skip over with me to verse 105. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and it's a light to my path. You know, there's nothing more scary than walking down a road that you don't know what's up ahead and it's totally, completely dark. You can turn an ankle, you can break a leg, you can step on a landmine, you can trip over an alligator. I mean, you can't see a thing. And that's the way life is. And God says the wonderful thing is that if you will let it, the Word of God will be a mercury lamp for you, lighting the path up ahead, showing you where the landmines are, showing you where the alligators are, so you don't step on them. Last of all, for our consideration today, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law, David says. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies. Verse 99. I have more insight... They're all my teachers. Why? Because I meditate on your statutes. The Bible says you may be stupid. I openly admit I am stupid. But the Bible says if you will saturate your life with the Word of God, the Word of God will make you smarter. The Word of God will make you wiser. The Word of God will give you supernaturally more discernment and insight. You say, Lon, how does the Bible do that? Folks, I don't have the slightest idea, but I know I need it. And however it does it for me, I'm happy to take whatever wisdom God can give me. You want to get wiser? Let me tell you how to do it. Saturate your life with the Word of God. You know, here at McLean Bible Church, you may not realize this, but here at McLean Bible Church, I cannot write, as a senior pastor, I cannot write a check from McLean Bible Church for $5. I can't write a check for $1. I'm not allowed to sign checks. None of our staff are. I can't access petty cash. If you went out and you bought $5 worth of coffee for the office and wanted to get reimbursed from petty cash and you came to me, said, Lon, could you get $5 out of petty cash and give it to me? I can't. I have no access to those funds. None of our staff do. I can't. Uh, none of our staff count your offering. None of our staff deposit your offering. None of our staff have any idea what was in the offering. We have our books gone over by an outside auditor every single month. They review our figures and we have an audit done every single year. You say, wait a minute. You're telling me that if I came in here and needed to be reimbursed a dollar and twenty-five cents, that you can't go into the petty cash box and get a dollar twenty-five cents or write me a check for a dollar twenty-five cents? Absolutely right. I can't do that. You say, well, who set up such a stupid system? I did. I did. And it's not a stupid system. Because you know as well as I do about how sensitive our world is about the church and preachers and money. This is not a stupid thing to do at all. You say, well, why did you do it? I did it because when I was in seminary, I read the Bible. <laughs> now, I've read the Bible since. Uh, you know, I was in seminary. <laughs> when I was in seminary, I read the Bible. 
And one of the things the Bible said, 1 Thessalonians 5.22, avoid every appearance of evil. And also in the Bible, when Paul had taken up this huge collection to take to the people, the, the Christians in Jerusalem, all this money, he sent a whole bunch of people along and put all kind of safeguards around how that money was transported. And he said this in the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he said, the reason I'm doing this is he said, for we are taking pains to, to, so that we, we can do what is right, not only in the sight of God, but also in the sight of men. Paul says, you know, handling all this money, it's wonderful for us to say, well, you know, God knows we didn't do anything wrong with it. But it's even better if we can put some safeguards on it so people can look and say, we know they didn't do anything wrong with it because there were safeguards on how that money was handled. Paul said, so that's what I've done. And reading that in the Bible in seminary, I remember saying, if God ever gives me the privilege to pastor a church, one of the first things I'm going to do is put some safeguards in place so there will never be even the slightest hint of doubt as to whether or not I or any of our staff could ever misuse the funds of this church. This is one of the reasons for 18 years, friends, we have not even had a burp, thank God, of financial irregularity here because we have the wisdom to put some things in place to make sure it's almost impossible for it to happen. You say, you sure are smart, Lon. No, I'm not. I'm stupid. But I had enough sense to read the Word of God and listen to it. And you know what? In your business, in your family, in your endeavors, if you will read the Word of God and you'll listen to it, God will help you make a lot of smarter decisions than you would make otherwise, too. Principle number two. Not only be immersed in the Word of God, but principle number two is do not underestimate your heart. You say, what in the world do you mean by that? I mean, Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says this. The human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. The human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Now, you know what? Our world system doesn't believe that. Our world system believes that the problem is your parents and how you were raised and the economic situation you're in now and the society that you're living in and the environment around you and your lack of education or whatever. But, uh, but God says, no, 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 that's not the problem at all. They may be problems, but that is not the key problem. The key problem is what lives inside your chest cavity and inside my chest cavity. Our hearts as human beings, the Bible says, has an, have incredible abilities to deceive us. Our hearts have the ability to lead us astray. And, you know, I have come to believe and, and to know that some of the stupidest decisions I have ever made in my life came because I underestimated the deceitfulness of my own heart. I have in my heart this unbelievable ability to justify and legitimize the most incredible wrong behavior and somehow believe I'm right when I'm doing it. You say, Lon, you're right, you are a bum. No, 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 you're a bum too. You have the same thing living inside of you. We're all bums like that. There was an article in USA Today just this past week on embezzlement, corporate embezzlement. I don't know if you saw it. But it says that 1997 is likely to go down as a record year for corporate embezzlements. And they interviewed a guy in there named Chris Franklin. He works for the Chubb Insurance Group. He investigates embezzlement claims. And here's what he said. He said, and I quote, He said, we've seen cases where daughters have ripped off their own father's firms. And then he goes on to say, you just can't trust anybody. End of quote. I'll bet you if you talk to those daughters, 
I'll bet you that somehow they would tell you, somehow they had worked it around in their mind and in their heart, that they somehow felt they were justified in ripping off their own father's firms. And now how they could get to that point, I don't know. But I guarantee you, somehow they felt they were justified in doing that. That's the deceitfulness of our own heart. You say, but Lon, we're Christians. That's right. And let me tell you, the difference between Christians and non-Christians is only that Jesus Christ lives in our life and He is able to expose the deceitfulness of our hearts so that we can see it before it ends up trapping us and causing us to make some awful choices. But He cannot do that for us unless we want Him to. He cannot do that for us unless we're asking Him to. And the only way you'll be down there on your knees asking God to expose the deceit of your heart to you is if you come to the place that you accept God's analysis of your heart and stop underestimating the deceitfulness of your own heart. It'll lead you into some of the worst choices in your whole life and convince you you're right the whole time you're making them until the bottom falls out. Third, principle number three, don't overestimate yourself. You see, we live in a world system that values big shots. We live in a world system that, that, that wants everybody to notice the people that are famous and powerful. But God has an entirely different value system, friends. In the Bible, God says that he values servants. And that's why he tells us, Romans chapter 12, verse 3, Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought, God says, but think about yourself with sober judgment. And friends, when we begin to think that we're bigger shots than we really are, one of the dangers of that is we begin to think that the rules are for everybody else and they're not for us. We begin to think that we're above the rules. We begin to believe that the rules don't apply to us. And we begin to feel that somehow we're entitled to certain things. And if we're not going to be given them under the normal rules, then we're going to break the rules and go get them anyway because we're entitled to them. It's arrogance that takes us to that place, and that is a sure formula to self-destruct. You know, I, I read Time Magazine, Newsweek Magazine every week, Sports Illustrated, I try, and I don't read that many articles that really, frankly, I find intriguing. But there was one article I read a couple years ago that is absolutely fascinating. It was written by a Harvard Med School psychologist named Steve Berkless, and, and the name of the article is called, The Bigger They Are, The Harder They Fall. And what Steve Berkowitz did, this Harvard Med School guy, is he went and studied the, the greatest success stories in the world and then those, those same people who self-destructed. For example, he studied Donald Trump, Pete Rose, Imelda Marcos, Jimmy Baker, I, I mean Jim Baker, Jimmy Swaggart, Leona Helmsby, Dennis Levine, Michael Milken. You all know these names. And he said the one constant that he found in every one of their lives, quoting now, listen, he said their success created a level of arrogance at which they ceased to follow the rules anymore. They began to see themselves as masters of the universe, and that was their undoing. You say, well, did he have a solution for people? Yeah, listen to what he said. He said, and I quote, he said, the only antidote is to go be part of a community, to be an Indian, not a chief. To lose their identity as being a servant to a group of people. When you do that, he says, you don't take advantage of people. You don't exploit people. I've seen it work. The healthiest people, he says, in the world are the people who have this commitment to be a servant to others. Now, here we have a Harvard Med School psychologist calling people to humble themselves and become servants to others and telling us 
that not only is this the healthiest way to live, but also telling us that this is an insulation in our life against pathologically self-destructive behavior. Very interesting. Because when you read the Bible, you find 2,000 years ago, Jesus said the very same thing. He said, the world goes around valuing its big shots, but this is not my plan for you. The greatest among you, he said, is the one who will be what? The servant. And by calling us, as Jesus did, to this kind of lifestyle of humility and serving others, Jesus knew that what he was doing, among other things, is putting up spiritual guardrails around our life to keep us from veering our car off into the ditch. And it's wonderful, it's positively wonderful to see that 2,000 years later, Harvard Med School is finally catching up to Jesus. I think that's great, don't you? Good for them. Friends, to be a servant to others means that you don't feel you're entitled to anything. It means whatever people give you, you're grateful for it and the rules are for you. And this is one of the secrets to keeping your car on the road and out of the ditch. Be careful. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Don't overestimate yourself. It's a sure formula to end up in the ditch. Fourth and finally, slow down long enough to think through the consequences of something before you do it. You know, Brenda and I, when we were first married, we established a rule, a little deal. And the deal was if we were going to spend more than $100 on anything, we would always go home overnight and sleep on it before we made the decision. Now, the rule was not really created for my wife, Brenda. The rule was created for me because I'm, that's, I buy impulsively. And the rule is, no matter how much at 9 o'clock at night in front of that salesperson, we are convinced that we absolutely have got to have this thing. I don't care if I got saliva running out the side of my mouth, I want it so bad. The deal is we go home and sleep on it. And you know that has helped us make, uh, avoid so many purchasing, self-destructive uh, purchases. I mean, we would have, I, I can't imagine how many mistakes we would have made if we hadn't had that little rule to go home and think about it first. I don't think that just applies to purchasing things. I think there's great application here for making spiritual decisions in our lives. You know, Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not an idiot. And you're not going to make an idiot out of God. Whatever a person sows, that's exactly what they're going to reap. See, if you and I could go out and we could sow disobedience to God, immoral behavior, unethical behavior, sinful behavior, we could sow selfish behavior, and then we could reap unmitigating blessing, God would be an idiot. And we'd be making an idiot out of God. And the Bible says, I got news for you. Let me just remind you, that's not going to happen. Whatever you and I sow, folks, that's exactly what we're going to reap. And in light of that being true, it means that we need to slow down long enough when we're contemplating some decision to ask ourselves a question. Hey, if I sow this, what am I going to reap? If I do this, what is the cost that this is going to bring me? And am I prepared to pay that cost to do this thing? I was in New York City a few years ago. Uh, I had a meeting up there of a Christian organization. I was on their board. And at lunch, one of the guys on the board uh, came and he said, could we go for a walk around Manhattan for a little while? I said, sure. So we went out, we were walking. Now, this guy is the owner of a major pharmaceuticals company uh, that does business worldwide. He's an outspoken Christian, had a, a Christian reputation in his company, a Christian reputation in his industry all around the world. He was married to a, a lovely Christian lady. He had two grown daughters that were walking with Jesus Christ. And, and, and he, he went for a walk and he said, you know, he said, um, everything's going okay, except I got a little bored with my life. So he said, I decided I wanted to get into community theater. And so I began acting in some plays, you know, there in my neighborhood. He said, and I met this woman. 
And I went, uh-oh. Here we go. And he said, Lon, I'm telling you, it, I, it's like I'm iron fragments and this woman's the magnet, man. He said, I'm just telling you, I can't stay away from this woman. I, I mean, it's like she has a power over me and I'm thinking about leaving my wife and going off with this woman. What do you think? I said, listen, man, this is a no-brainer. You don't need me. One of my sons could have gone with a walk for you and answered this question. This is a no-brainer. I said, you need to slow down long enough to think what this is going to cost you. Now, think for a second. You're going to lose your marriage. You're going to lose the respect and the relationship with both of your daughters if you do this. You're going to ruin your reputation inside your office building. You're going to slander the name of Jesus Christ throughout your whole industry. We're going to throw you off this board. I said, I'm going to make the motion myself. If you do this, you're not going to serve on this board doing this. They're going to throw you off all the other Christian boards that you're on. I said, you know, I'm I'm telling you, man, there is no woman in the world who's worth this cost. And if I was talking to a woman, I'd say there's no man in the world worth that cost. He said, what did he do? He went and did it. He said, wonderful, Lon, remind me to call you when I need counseling. Well, now, wait a minute. It wasn't my fault he went and did it. I gave him good advice, didn't I? Wasn't it good advice? The guy didn't slow down long enough to think what it was going to cost him. Let me tell you something. Every single thing I told him it was going to cost him, it did, and more. His wife left him. His daughters won't speak to him. He's been disgraced in his industry. He got thrown off that board and every other Christian board he was on. And worse, everything that I told him was going to happen, happened. That guy didn't slow down long enough to think. And I'll tell you what, I learned an incredible lesson by watching all this go down. One of the lessons I learned is, Lon, don't you ever make decisions like that. So whenever I've got a decision, I try to sit back and conduct what I like to call a mental fallout study. I mean, let's talk about what the fallout's going to be if I set this nuclear bomb off, okay? And if I set it off, what's going to happen? And you know, it's amazing how often God uses that exercise to keep me from making stupid decisions because I back off and go, whoa, I'm not willing to pay. If that's what it's going to cost, I'm not going to pay that for this. Man, wonderful. You say, well, Lon, maybe God wouldn't make you pay for it. No, remember, wait a minute. Whatever a person sows, that's what they reap. Works for preachers, works for lawyers. God knows, I hope it works for lawyers. Works for all kinds of people. Works for all kinds of people. It works for you. Don't you think God's going to let you get away with something? No, he isn't. Whatever you sow, it's what you're going to reap. Do a fallout study. Make sure you're ready to pay the fallout before you set the bomb off. It'll really help. Four principles to help keep you and me out of the ditch. Number one, stay vitally connected to the Word of God. Number two, don't underestimate the deceitfulness of your heart. It'll lead you into making some of the worst decisions in your life and convince you you're right all the time. Number three, don't overestimate yourself. The rules are for you. And fourth and finally, slow down long enough to consider the consequences before you do something. Friends, as I said earlier, God wants you to finish the race well. And and, and he's given us some principles to help us. And if we'll follow these principles and use them as filters before we make choices, I'm telling you, you'll, be, you'll step on a lot fewer landmines than you'd step on otherwise, and you'll keep from blowing yourself up a lot less. And that's God's goal for you. So I hope what we've studied today will change the way you make decisions and help your life be a life that doesn't have spiritual disaster. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love us so much. That your goal for us is to end the race well. To be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I finished the course. I kept the faith. And now my gold medal is in heaven. 
And Father, I pray that you would take these principles that we've talked about and that you would use them in our life and and that you would change the way we make decisions, that you would change the very process of how we think that through. And God, because of our contact with the Word of God today, that you would enable us to make a lot fewer train wreck decisions in our life. Help us with that, Lord, I pray. And like this uh, man, this friend of mine I was talking about, help us to reach the place where we don't disgrace the name of Jesus Christ because of bad choices that we make. And we don't bring disaster upon ourselves and our families. Thank you that you loved us so much, that you gave us some guidelines to help us. Work along with us now, I pray, God, and help us make these guidelines part of our everyday decision-making process. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.